Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161AR79, Wealth, from the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 185, January the 3rd, 1989. Tonight, first of all, Otto, Scott, and myself are going to speak on wealth. The subject seems an obvious one, but wealth has had a great many definitions over the centuries. The culture and the religious faith of the people usually determines what is wealth. And of course, there are individual variations. Otto and I are usually poor when we come out of a bookstore as far as money is concerned, but we feel a lot richer. Now, uh, that gives you an idea of the differences in the definitions of wealth. The culture and the individual define wealth. There have been some very curious ones over the centuries. We'll touch on some of them like the family, land, power, gold and silver, and so on. Sometime after World War II, not very long after, uh, a couple whom Dorothy and I knew well in those days uh, went to a foreign country where the husband had a very uh, important position. He was a part of the scientific community. He was doing some uh, work as a liaison officer and therefore was on a very high level. Accordingly, his wife was invited to meet with some very prominent women in that country. However, she very quickly made herself unwelcome because of her temper. Uh, which exploded over a particular thing. And both the United States and the host country uh, declared she had to leave. The problem was that uh, the wives of that country, high-level people, married to the most prominent of men, uh, seriously questioned whether her husband's high-ranking status was legitimate, that he was obviously neither important nor, poor, uh, nor wealthy. And they told this astounded uh, woman that they had proof of that, and the proof was that he had no mistresses, that any person who was supposed to be as important as he was would have several. Well, that was a definition of wealth, a very important one to uh, that particular culture at that particular time. And it infuriated this girl no end. Now, there are definitions all around us that might trouble us too, that we do not cotton to. A culture always has tensions within it as differing peoples representing different perspectives and faiths vary in what they regard as well. Well, with those introductory words, Otto, would you like to uh, make a general statement as well? 
That's interesting, your comment about bookstores. <clears throat> it reminds me that Erasmus said, whenever I get hold of a little money, I buy books. The rest I use for necessities. <laughs> and and I, could, I could appreciate that. And Dorothy is smiling at that. <laughs> the, uh, I recall the first time I received uh, a payment from a ship. I received a thousand dollars and a penny. <laughs> and they paid in cash at the end of the trip in those days. So I had a thousand dollar bill and a penny. And I didn't have any other money. And I had to walk instead of getting a cab because there's no point trying to get a cab with a thousand dollar bill. And I checked into the first hotel I came to, which was near the waterfront, was a flea bag. And the door wasn't very secure. The lock looked to me pretty flimsy. And I laid awake half the night fearing somebody was going to come in and take away my thousand dollar bill. <laughs> and I suppose that was a sort of a indication of how a great many rich people get to believe. Uh, I think they live in fear that some somebody or somehow their money is going to be taken away. That's not a fear we have to worry much about. No, it isn't. <laughs> Unless there are book thieves around. <laughs> there are book thieves around, in case you don't know. Yes. I understand that there are booksellers on the sidewalks of New York now. Oh. Yes, they're selling books. Uh, from little benches and stands and the backs of cars and so forth. And private libraries are now the object of burglaries. Oh, my. And the bookstores in New York, the regular bookstores, are very upset because all sorts of new books are appearing by these peddlers at discount prices. But going back to the whole business of wealth, it's a relative thing. I remember a friend of mine named Edwards who came from Scotland talking about being young in Scotland. He said, I said, well, I understand that you're all very poor. Well, he said, we didn't know it. Yes. We didn't know it. He said, I never felt poor until I came to the United States. Mm -hmm. Then he said, I saw wealth. And when I saw wealth, he said, I began to feel poor. Mm -hmm. Now, I, the Soviet Union with a nomenclatura do not live the people on the top of the Soviet Union do not really live much better than the middle class here but everyone else is so dirt poor that they feel immensely rich mm -hmm. and when Stalin's daughter came over here Svetlana she stayed at an estate I believe in New Jersey near Princeton and the gardener came to her and told her that he was a poor man and that this was really a country of great oppression. And she was very sympathetic and he invited her to visit his home. And she went to his home and she looked around and she saw what he had and she said, why, you're rich, you lied to me. <laughs> yes. But he felt poor. And a lot of people in the United States feel poor and they feel poorer than they are. I recall, and so do you, the 30s, when outhouses were common more than indoor plumbing across the United States, yes. when the average family might have hamburger once a week and feel that they were doing pretty well, mm -hmm. had chicken on Thanksgiving and 
Christmas, which is always a poor man's meal. But I do recall in New Windsor, the village where my mother's people settled, the working class people there had their own homes, but they lived on a very Spartan level. They didn't feel poor. There were many people poor. And now I look at the, the automobiles parked alongside the fields where the pickers come. Pretty good-looking cars. Yes. Long way from the grapes of wrath. Yes. And yet we hear more about poverty in the United States today than ever. Yes. Uh, in the 30s, electricity was still predominantly an urban uh, thing. If you got out into the countryside very far, the power was not there. It might run along the highways between certain cities or towns, and therefore the farms that were on that road would get power. But if you went off that highway, you did not find it. I think the best way to describe life then, because people felt privileged rather than poor, they felt it was marvelous to be in this country. They felt it was a great wealth to have freedom is to recall the words of uh, President Eisenhower when he was running for office and before he was elected in a speech which I thought was outstanding he spoke of his childhood and described how little they had and then said Looking back now, I know how poor we were, but we and our neighbors all felt rich. Now, the difference there is a religious one. At that time, the people among whom he lived were German immigrants, very devout people, and very much more given to assessing wealth in terms of their Christian faith. And we have lost a sense of the true wealth that one does have in a faith and a heritage, in a culture and family, because we have become humanistic and materialistic in our culture. Well, there's a lot to that. But there's also the fact that in Europe, the class structure was much more obvious and evident and, uh, you might say, omnipresent. Yes. In uh, the days of Eisenhower's youth or, or childhood. And I know that my own dad, for instance, uh, was very much more aware of class than I was in the United States because he brought with him a sense of class. And one of the things that made the United States unusual was the idea that everyone was equal socially, mm -hmm. even if they weren't. And I think being released from that sort of class feeling that you, after all, are not an arist aristocrat, you don't have what the rich do, and so forth, we didn't see the rich in the United mm -hmm. States in quite the same terms that they become evident since. Yes. And... Uh, those who were well off didn't make a point of it particularly even though there were larger homes and better off people 
nobody was there to agitate anyone about the matter. Now we have a constant drumming. The arousal, you might say, a contrived arousal of envy. The lives of the rich and famous. Uh, the magazines which tell you the palatial and, and uh, excellent, elegant homes of the better off and so forth and so on. And also we do have a class, an upper class, of a different nature than before. The, uh, the more expensive schools, we have the more expensive accoutrements, we have $36,000 automobiles and so forth, 75000 125000 for a Rolls Royce, all that. But primarily we have people going around talking about poverty. And talking about poverty as an injury inflicted upon somebody. Now, when I was a boy and a young man, poverty was not a disgrace. No. It, it was so you, uh, you weren't rich, but what difference did that make? You could work, you could take care of yourself. Nobody felt any the less. But here we have a rising tempo, a crescendo, you might say. I remember thinking during the 30s, when I uh, would read some of the sob stories in the paper on occasion, and especially around Christmas, you know, that every Christmas time the press indulges in great tears and sobs over the poor and over the troubles of people. And in, it's as though they uh, are insistent, the journalists insist that there cannot be a joyful period because uh, somebody over there is not having a good time or having a very hard time. But I remember thinking in the 30s that the greatest depression in the history of the United States was in the 1830s, not the 1930s. Mm -hmm. The 1830s in the, uh, began in the Andrew Jackson administration. It was one of the fallouts of his fight with the Bank of the United States. He set off a financial debacle of enormous proportions which wiped out people all across the country. Unemployment and real privation all through the country through the 1830s, the whole decade. It lasted over a decade, if I remember correctly. And I thought in the 1930s, none of the people who were crying in the 1930s would have been able to put up with the conditions of the 1830s because the country had made a tremendous leap forward in that century. Mm -hmm. Now, here in the 1980s, 50 years after the Great Depression, I just saw on television last night that nobody in Sacramento has to miss a single meal. The missions are feeding all the homeless. Yes, you get all kinds of horror stories, but too little about what Christian organizations are doing. Earlier, Otto, you mentioned the strong sense of class that marked Europe, and which was absent in this country uh, in earlier years and into our lifetime, uh, to about World War II, except in a few circles in the East. I recall some years ago a very fine professor, a German, who was uh, an officer in World War I on the Western Front for Germany 
and at the same time had been a professor, so he was hair doctor, older lieutenant, uh, so on and so forth. And once when he was feeling uh, a bit mellow and was discussing with laughter his military history, he described the title that had to be uh, pronounced. It was a yard long before any junior officer could report anything to him. A whole formal title that could never be neglected. And he once said, if those ladies from hell, that is the Scots, uh, the Scots had come over the top charging as they did, before the fellow could get through with his titles, they would have overrun them. <laughs> now, there was that very, very strong emphasis on class in Europe that was missing here. And as a result, there was a sense of freedom because a man was what he made himself. His life and his future depended on himself and his willingness to work. In those days and up until about 1955 to 60, the uh, slum areas of our eastern cities where immigrants would land, and I've mentioned this before, but I think it's important enough to mention again, would have a turnover every five to six years because that was how long the migrants or immigrants would last in the slums. They would work their way out. They'd have good homes. And uh, they would be successful citizens. If they went into storekeeping, living above the shop oh, yes. was a routine thing and many a family grew rich and never wanted to leave living above the shop. And I was delighted the other day to uh, hear Margaret Thatcher say that the best way, the best place to live was above the shop and that's what she was doing at 10 Downing Street living above the shop. Well, in that case, she hasn't fallen far from the tree because no. when she grew up, she lived over the shop. Yes. And when Mr. Coolidge left the presidency, he moved into a small apartment over a shop in New England. Yes. And he had no secret service guards. No. Mr. Truman left the White House carrying his own bags mm -hmm. on the way back to Independence, Missouri. It changed a great deal in a short time. I'm not sure uh, that this is going to continue. I was thinking earlier this evening, I was looking through a book, and there was a comment in it about going to the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C., I guess in the 50s, and paying $17 a night for a room. Mm -hmm. Now, I've been in the Hilton, the Washington Hilton, recently, and I can tell you that the price is over 200 Yes. It's from $17 to over 200 in one generation. And the service is not as good as it used to be. No, it isn't. Because they have a steady stream of people going to Washington, D.C. and seeking out rooms. 
Well, they don't have to worry about whether you come back or not. No. But the <clears throat> it, it brings up the question of wealth and the loss of wealth. Inflation. Inflation is loss of wealth. It means that the government is stealing your money. And I remember... Well, of course, we're going to see it again as the rates of inflation go up in the next few years, which seems to be pretty obvious. We're going to be told once again that it's all due to the fact that prices have increased. Now, mm -hmm. uh, this canard is one of the favorites of the press. Mm -hmm. The press always looks at the symptom as the cause. One of the things that happens when you have false views of wealth develop is that uh, the emphasis becomes one of appearances. The appearance, the manner, the parade of wealth becomes everything. Uh, you have read, as I have, Thorsten Veblen's the theory of the leisure class. Oh, a wonderful book. <laughs> yes. It's too, you know, he, he, a brilliant man was never able to keep a job in any university. <laughs> they couldn't stand him. Well, I think this is very revealing on how it becomes more important to maintain the form than even to live. Conspicuous waste. Yes. This uh, episode from page 43 of the theory of the leisure class. I quote, a better illustration, or at least a more unmistakable one, is afforded by a certain king of France, who is said to have lost his life through an excess of moral stamina in the observance of good form. In the absence of the functionary whose office it was to shift his master's seat, the king sat uncomplaining before the fire and suffered his royal person to be toasted beyond recovery, but in so doing, he saved his most Christian majesty from menial contamination. Isn't Unquote. that fantastic? And that reminds me of an anecdote which has been written about President Reagan. It said that a fire broke out in the White House and his office, the Oval Room, filled with smoke, and he didn't leave until somebody came in and told him there was a fire. Very interesting. Like the French king who died rather than get up and move his chair. There is another story about French and uh, Frenchmen and great wealth, which I read some years ago. It said that this Frenchman went to a physician. And the physician, after looking him over, said, I have bad news for you. You have a terminal illness. And the Frenchman said, That's impossible. I'm too rich. <laughs> And I often think this is a, a syndrome which has overtaken the United States. Yes. We feel as a nation that we're too rich to suffer any debacles. Well, I shared with you the other day uh, an item in the San Francisco Examiner for November the 6th. Now, let me uh, share it now with everybody because it tells you what uh, wealth now means in Japan. I quote, Until recently, the average Japanese commode was a small room, usually unheated, with a hole in the wall, a floor serving as a toilet. 
Today there is a tremendous demand for a $3,000 high-tech paperless flusher. Consider the Toto Queen model TCF950, a top-of-the-line number that looks complicated enough to require a license to operate. Go ahead, sit down, make yourself comfortable. A computer chip memory has seen to it that the seat has been automatically cleaned and perfectly preheated. The control panel blinks. Do what you sat down here to do. Then wait, don't reach for that toilet paper. Just press a button. A mechanical arm emitting the slightest of mechanical whirs slips out beneath the posterior parts. Jets of cleansing water shoot upward. You control the temperature, the pressure, the angle of the stream. The water is followed by blasts of drying hot air and then finally puffs of perfumed mist. The automatic bottom washing toilet took off in sales when, when a pretty young lady on TV said, even your bottom wants to be washed. A second winning commercial depicted a gorilla poking the control panel and squinting into the bowl, only to be squirted by a jet of water from the bidet nozzle. The public loved it. Manufacturers are not content with backlogs of orders. They are designing toilets that will perform various medical tasks, urine and stool analysis, the taking of temperature and blood pressure, then feed all the information by computer to the family physician, end of quote. Now, <laughs> I'm sure that a group would immediately be formed here to make it illegal. <laughs> Except for the elite. <laughs> They're a very strange people. Well, we're seeing more and more ways devised to uh, show that you are wealthy. Neiman Marcus has gifts every Christmas out of which they make a fortune that are on the variety of this kind of thing. That's true, but what is also true, too, is that in the last, oh, let's say, 80 years, the United States government, in common with the government of Great Britain and other Western governments, has moved to destroy the historic creation of family wealth, yes. which existed through the centuries from the fall of Rome up until this century in the form of inheritance taxes, yes. the family wealth has been pretty progressively broken down. Yes. Now, all kinds of small business and not so small businesses created by families have had to be sold in order to avoid the tax structures on the air. The inheritance taxes did more to consolidate large industry in the United States than any other single factor. And the period when you could hand down your money to your son, your grandson, your great-grandson, and so forth, and when a family could rest secure in their mm -hmm. property is all gone. Yes. What we're living in now is an era in which individual wealth has become the target of governmental efforts. Yes. What happens, what's happened to the Hunt family, for instance, is very interesting. They've been persecuted on one angle or another for years, and there seems to be a concerted effort 
to put them up against the wall. The price of silver was broken by federal intervention in order to destroy the hunts. And that is not particularly unique. No. Well, the family is a target. The family wealth is a thing that held families together. Yes. Because if you have to leave home to make a living, it's the beginning of the end of the extended family. Mm -hmm. And this is true through cousins, through uncles, and everything else. Yes. The family has been the basic locale of wealth over the centuries. Of course, there have been very different kinds of uh, family culture. You and Dorothy are both of a Scottish ancestry, and Dorothy comes from border Scots, particularly wild ones, you know, the border Scots. Uh, it's just been over-publicized, that's all. Uh, well, they had uh, two uh, concepts of determining how important you were, how many members you had in your family and clan, and how many people or clans you were fighting against. If you were at war with six or more other uh, clans, you were important. But the family has had a very important history. Uh, sometimes it has been a problem, for example, in uh, Tibet, the family is all-important and the individual has no significance and to maintain the family and the land intact the brothers have to share one wife so that there is no division uh, in central Europe until the early 1800s a like system prevailed and all that except that all the uh, brothers and sisters who did not inherit the land stayed on as servants or went out to work somewhere else. An ancestor worship represents the uh, ugliest kind of family uh, life because it does lead to uh, a radical orientation to the past. On the other hand, the family, as we have it in Scripture, is all-important because there, there is a sense of responsibility required in that no one is an heir unless they share the faith and are responsible as well. The oldest son, if he were capable and godly, received a double portion. If not, he was passed over. The family regarded the wealth it had not as private property, but as family property, and as a trust received from previous generations to be handed down to the generations to come. Well, it was more like a corporation. Yes, exactly. The, uh, some of the noble Italian families uh, adopted if there wasn't a suitable heir, yes. the Colonna family, for instance, adopted fairly regularly and mm -hmm. fairly often a bright young men to carry on. And then, of course, there are the different forms of wealth in the agrarian society, land in one place, animals in another. Mm -hmm. 
your biblical tribes, uh, I notice, in the Old Testament are always talking about the number of the animals. Yes. And that was true apparently in Ireland as well, which mm -hmm. was not so much an agrarian as a uh, uh, whatever you call raising animals, husbandry, I guess. Mm -hmm. The United States was very fortunate for the people who came here in the 19th century because there were enormous domains to be settled. And the same thing was true in South Africa when the original Afrikaners first went down there. There was empty land as far as the eye could see. And I believe that the Afrikaners staked out farms uh, as much as they could encompass in a day's ride. And very similar, vast areas were allocated here, taken by individuals. Now we have a very different sort of thing. The United States government owns more land west of the Mississippi than any of the people. Yeah. All the millions of the people that live west of the Mississippi put together don't own as much land as the federal government does. Yes. And the present federal government doesn't want the American people to get any of that land. Mm -hmm. The former American government wanted the people to have the land so they could be rooted, so they could be loyal, so they could be self-supporting, and so forth. But the present government believes that people pollute land. We have here some very strange new ideas coming about. The environmentalists, for instance, are so dedicated to the land and to the animals, one wonders why they don't erect Hindu temples and be done with it. Mm -hmm. Because this is really Hinduism. Yes. Well, here in this county, we have a fair percentage of the population uh, who are our descendants of people who came at the time of the gold rush. Yes. And uh, many of them still have a deep sense of roots. And in some instances, if uh, they're asked if they're interested in selling a piece of their land, they regard that as an insult. It belongs to the family. It belongs to the family. Now, don't forget, when you look at the old buildings up here, they were made of stone. Yes. And the idea was that they would be used forever. Mm -hmm. Latin America used to build only in stone. My father said one of the things that shocked him when he first came to the United States was to see wooden houses. Because he said they're impermanent. They're, they're transitory. How long can a family occupy a wooden house? Well, now we have the other extreme. People don't want to buy anything except a brand new house. They don't want to have a house that's been used by anyone else. <laughs> well, wealth today is more precarious than it has ever been because we have shifted our ground from uh, enduring forms of wealth, such as land, such as gold and silver, uh, to paper assets. Paper assets that are inflated and are very much subject to deflation. Well, look at it. 
at one time sound as a dollar really meant what it said yes. it was backed by gold but today we pick up the newspaper every day the Wall Street Journal every day to see what the dollar is worth it fluctuates every day and this is like trying to have a system of architecture or engineering in which the size of the inch in the yard would fluctuate every day under those circumstances it wouldn't be possible to engineer anything because you would be in a state of flux with your basic uh, elements and an economic system which has a unit of value that changes in value every day is in a similar state of flux this yeah. is chaotic in the uh, mid 60s I knew uh, a man whose very name I've forgotten now, who was very wealthy. He could uh, point to huge office buildings as his property. Uh, but, and he was uh, very contemptuous of people who were cautious and who uh, were back then buying silver because silver coinage was no longer being minted having ceased in 64 but it was ironic because in one of the uh, downturns under Lyndon Johnson he lost everything because he was continually expanding his financial empire from state to state everything was borrowed against he leveraged everything he leveraged everything and he lost everything and that's the kind of wealth that is uh, considered uh, significant today very vulnerable well the Adam Smith's book the wealth of nations mm -hmm. which is really a history book yes there's a great deal more history in that book than there is economics and it's a fascinating book mm -hmm. He went over to France, as you remember, and he ran into the arguments of the physiocrats who had observed that the French had an antique system whereby each city and village could tax the goods that passed through it. So that in order to get a wagon load of goods from, let's say, uh, Lyon to Paris, you had to pay a different tax every time you went through a town and by the time it got to Paris it was very expensive and he said if they would simply remove these blocks to their internal commerce the goods would flow more easily uh, the prices would be more equitable and a lot of parasitic practices would that's interfered with production would go out of style which was really the basis of his uh, wealth of nations he also, of course, had some observations about international trade, saying that <clears throat> if uh, one country was producing one thing that was useful in another, well, then they could swap and both would be better off. He didn't foresee and couldn't have that the whole world would be industrialized and that, therefore, in the long run, in a completely open global market, everyone would be working for the wages of the Chinese because nobody would be able to undercut their costs. But it is interesting that when he himself, as a customs official, I believe he was a customs official, I'm not sure, 
was asked his opinion on a tariff on a particular commodity coming into his area, he wanted it kept. Mm -hmm. Which is just the difference between the ideal and the practical. Yes. Now, we have a problem in this country, and you called my attention to it recently, and that is what you termed the Neoplatonic practice of making an abstraction out of everything that is real in life. And when you make an abstraction out of wealth in the terms of paper money, stocks, bonds, debentures, and mutual funds, and so forth, a lot of people have forgotten that this world is real and that the bottom of everything is work. Yes, and because they have uh, tended to abstractionism in every field, you have uh, an instability in society. Family, land, gold, silver uh, meant permanent forms of wealth, permanent forms of security, nothing unstable. But we have shifted our ground radically, and the result is we have really a revolutionary society. It changes dramatically. It has no certain course. It has an inherent instability because of what it regards as wealth. Yes. Now we have, because of inflation, practically every physical good, every hard good, is infinitely more valuable now than it was when it was produced. Yes. You could not replace your library, for instance, at the price that you paid for it. No. <laughs> your library is worth probably 50 times more than you paid for it. Mm -hmm. Books now are running in, in hardcover books, prices are running, the kind that you and I buy and read, are running between 25 and $50 each. Yes. And some of the books, you know, I, I looked at the back page of one of Russia's books recently, and I saw where the Presbyterian and Reformed Press had several of his books listed for sale at 350 and 250 well, I referred earlier to uh, Thorsten Veblen's The Theory of the Leisure Class. This is a 1931 uh, edition. edition. No, 34, excuse me. It was reprinted in 34. 95 cents, hardback. Yes, those were the modern library yes. books and a great benefit when they came out because they gave us books that were otherwise very expensive, mm -hmm. everything being relevant. And look at the list. I remember when William Shirer's book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, came out at $10. It's a very long book. Mm -hmm. Everyone said at that time in New York City that $10 was an outrageous price and he'd never be able to sell. $10. Mm -hmm. That was in the early 60s. Yes. It was about 63 or 64 when the Veblen book was 95 cents. Mm -hmm. Well, all these physical things are now very getting very, very expensive to reduplicate. Consequently, those that exist are worth a great deal more. Yes. Uh, 
what Veblen said and what he was describing was a leisure class that was wealthy and regarded status as meaning uh, no requirement whatsoever to work and to expend uh, money as though it were limitless even though you might uh, be running out of it. Conspicuous consumption had to be manifested at all times. Now, that leisure class represented over the centuries a very small segment of the population of any country, of a minute group. Today it represents an increasing number. Whether it's your slum dweller now, or your people at the top, or in between. For example, the people who are in our slums, the amount of money many of them have is surprisingly large. But it is spent on drugs, it is spent on uh, clothing, or it is spent on junk food. It is thrown away. Well, of course, there's another point I'm sure you're coming to, and that is that they're living a leisure style. Yes. Because they have a bottom, a platform underneath them. Yes. Uh, they can. They have more leisure time mm -hmm. than our grandparents had. Whereas we have an odd thing happening here: the middle class is working harder than it ever worked in the history of mm -hmm. the world, but the upper and the bottom mm -hmm. have got all the time in the world to waste time. And our educational system, our state schools, are creating more and more members of this class that. Uh, Veblen described students who grow up feeling that they have uh, no responsibility to work, that the goal in life is to enjoy yourself. Well, the parallel really is with Spain. Spain received this flood of gold and silver from the New World, and its armies had already conquered in their poverty-stricken days, I might add, uh, large areas of Europe. And as the gold and silver flowed into Spain, the Spanish government and the Spanish nobility began to get the idea that work was something beneath a caballero, beneath a gentleman. Anything with your hands was just not to be done. Mm -hmm. And the great treasure, the great fortune of Spain was spent in building churches, cathedrals, convents, monasteries and palaces mm -hmm. and internationally Spain embarked on a series of adventures in which they used their money to subvert other governments and in useless wars. That uh, period is very interesting because it is unique in all the history of the world in that an inflation was created by a vast influx of hard money, of That's gold right. and it silver. It raised the price of everything in Europe. Yes. Now the Spaniards, it's interesting that uh, Charles V and Philip II and his successors ran the Spanish government into bankruptcy time and time again. But they really had the feeling that the well would never run dry. Yes. In the process, however, of wasting this wealth, they forgot to work. Now, I read a very interesting book by Thomas Sowell examining five different groups of immigrants who came into the United States. 
the Italians, the Irish, the Japanese, the blacks, and one other, forgotten now. Uh, I've forgotten which one. At any rate, none of these groups advanced until they buckled down to work. The Irish were the last and the latest to do so. They were the first to try to elevate themselves through political means. They got hold of the city machinery. They were the first people, by the way, to set up an anti-defamation league with the Irish. A lot of good it did them. <laughs> and a lot of good it does anybody to set up such a league, because a league to stop everyone else from speaking is bound to failure. Mm -hmm. But in any event, they did elect mayors and congressmen, and they did elect, they got people into the police and the fire department and in all the municipal service organizations. But the women remained housemaids and the men remained laborers until they finally started to go to school and to work more intelligently. The same thing was true of all the other groups. And I thought it was very interesting because Sowell's personal background as a professor of economics has given him a grounding in reality. Yes. Well, we've been talking about wealth. Now I'd like to sum up a few of the things that we've been discussing. Uh, work is the basis of wealth. Without work, nothing. nothing. But work has to be accompanied by thrift and providence, goals, so that... Uh, well, now you're talking about intelligently directed work. Yes, intelligently directed work. The other main form of wealth is a family and thrift and maintaining what a family has accumulated. Again, that is disappearing, both the work ethic and the uh, family that thinks in terms of the future. Well, just let me add that a family today, working hard and working intelligently, mm -hmm. has against it a tax structure which of course. is against the accumulation of wealth. Yes. The third point I was going to make, apart from family and work, is uh, wealth can be accumulated by theft. And that's how most wealth is accumulated today, because the state grants money, subsidies to various groups, and seizes it from the working uh, persons and families, or by personal violence, hoodlums, seizing it from others. So there's a vast transfer of wealth underway today, a, a phenomenal transfer of wealth, not only wealth presently created but wealth that has been accumulated over generations. Well, don't forget that to accumulate wealth in a monetary sense, financial sense, we'll take Dr. Armand Hammer. Dr. Hammer made a great deal of money by selling treasures from Russia to Americans and retired. The Hammer Galleries in New York, very famous. He retired. Then some people came to him and offered to sell him the stock of a company called Occidental Petroleum, a very small petroleum company. And Hammer bought the stock at a very low price, 
several hundred thousand dollars, and became involved in operating the company. And suddenly discovered to his surprise, and he was genuinely, I think, surprised, because don't forget, he was a crypto-communist mm -hmm. who had never really gotten into the capitalist system. To discover that he could make more money manipulating the stock of Occidental Petroleum than he could in all selling all the treasures mm -hmm. for all the previous years. What we have is an economic system which rewards financial maneuver yes. at a greater percentage than work. So who is going to work when money can make more money? Mm -hmm. Now this is, you might say, a satanic trap yes. for a nation. And it's one we have fallen into. We're struggling with it now. Yes. And what we need to do is to hope that there is enough residual Christian character and strength in the country to see us out of the disaster this is bringing on. Well, of course, it's like the tulip mania. Yes. It will collapse. Yes, for sure. And then, of course, we're brought down to earth with a thud. Mm -hmm. Now, if the collapse doesn't provide the left with a catalyst to move forward, if we have enough people to prevent the stupidities which have occurred in other countries that have had great crisis, mm -hmm. then we'll come through all right. Yes. And then we might realize what real wealth is all about. Yes. Well, our time is almost over. Are there any summary statements you'd like to add, Otto, at this time? Well, I think it's good to remember the wealthy Frenchman. Health is wealth. Mm -hmm. Talent is wealth. Courage is wealth. God gave us all the ingredients, but he left us the task of putting them together. Yes. Very, very well put. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you and prosper you. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.